You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to start there this morning. We've been uh, in the midst of a series on relationships here. We'll, uh, up until the point when we get to, to Advent, the first Sunday of December, we'll jump into the Gospel of John uh, for a while, a long while actually. Uh, but until then, we're going to be looking at just some different relationships. So today we come to look at the, the issue of parenting and children in general. So maybe in two cents, children, ministry to children in general, uh, loving the children in our lives well, and then, um, and then some issues regarding parenting as well. You know, of all the sermons in this series, this is the one I'm sort of least excited about because uh, this is the one area in my life where I feel like I stand before you completely exposed and weak and unable to do any of this. Um, I, I'm so impatient with my kids. I respond to their sin so harshly at times, and sometimes even not their sin so harshly at times. You know, I know Ephesians commands us not to provoke our children, and I know I'm guilty of that. And, um, and so I stand before you this morning knowing that, that I am weak in this area. I'm thankful that God's grace is, is abundant. You know, I want my home to be a home of grace where, where peace and joy abound. Uh, and I know that starts with me not with my kids getting it together or anything else. It starts with me. And so as we talk about this today, we want to keep this in mind because my, my suspicion is that you want your homes to be that way as well. Whether you're parents or not, you want your relationships to be full of peace and joy and love. So we'll talk this morning about addressing our own hearts and dealing with those things because we can, we can all learn principles from what the Bible says about parenting, whether we have kids or not, like I said, or whether our kids are tiny or all the way out of the house, you know, grown adults. Uh, we can we can learn things here to apply to all the relationships in which we're engaged. Um, you know, like I said, most of you know my children, and you likely know them as respectful and gracious and kind kids. And I can assure you that is the evidence of the goodness of grace of God, not my work. Um, I have I have plenty to repent of in my parenting, uh, so I'm thankful that God's grace is abundantly greater than my sin. Uh, and so I hope that when you see my kids and you think about me, you'll say, wow, there is hope for all of us. Um, he hasn't, if he hasn't messed them up that bad, then um, maybe there's hope for all of us. All right, with that in mind, like I said, we're going to start in Luke 18. We'll jump around in a couple places this morning. But we're going to start with a story about Jesus and how he approached uh, relationships with children. So if you'll give great attention to the reading of the very Word of God. I'm going to read Luke chapter 18, verses 15 uh, through 17. It says, Now they, just the people around Jesus, the, the people who followed Jesus, says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, would you give us faith to believe this? Faith like a child, as he says here, who trusts and, and depends upon you. God, would you, would you help us? to lead our children to you. As you draw them, would you help us not to be a hindrance to them? Help us to do all that you have called us to do. Help us to be faithful. Help us to deal with our own sin, that our kids might see 
that your grace is at work in our lives and they might long to love you uh, because you have first loved us. Thank you for Jesus, uh, through whom, his, through whose strength uh, our weakness is made strong. Help us to, to glorify him in all that we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in our passage today, what we see is people were bringing children, and even infants, uh, to Jesus for him to bless them. And so the disciples saw this and rebuked the people. And maybe that confuses us. We go, what in the world? Why would they not want kids to be with Jesus? Well, it's because in that culture, kids were just a burden. They offered nothing productive to society. They couldn't work yet, particularly infants. Uh, you know, until they could grow and mature to the point where they were productive, people just, they, were, they had no value. There was nothing redeeming, in a sense, about them. And so, um, and so they were, like I said, a, a nuisance. So the disciples thought that Jesus would be bothered by the kids around him, that he had more important things to do. You know, but we see in this passage that wasn't the case. You know, our society is divided uh, to some degree on how we view children. We have those in our society uh, who agree with first century people that children seem to have no value unless they can add value to society. You know, there are parts of our world where it's legal to abort a baby um, up and, you know, with a disability or sometimes even without a disability, but in, in many cases, you know, with any sort of disability up until the day of their, their due date. Uh, in, a, in a legal sense, because they don't want to burden a family with a child that might be disabled or, or somewhat or have some disability. You know, but there are those, there are even those I've read in the past few years, there are intellectuals in Western culture, uh, of which we, our nation, is a part of, uh, who are starting to argue that it should be even legal that if a baby is born, maybe they didn't realize that it was disabled and would add no value to society. It, this makes me angry, by the way. Um, you know, that baby's born is indeed to be a burden on society instead of a giver to society or whatnot. Uh, that, that, should be, that, that, we should, that should be allowed to euthanize that kid. Isn't that a sad and sterile word? <laughs> not murder, not kill, not get rid of. Euthanize. Clean it up a little bit. It's murder. And CBS News, uh, just a year ago, in August 2017, ran a story celebrating the fact that Iceland has essentially eradicated Down syndrome from their nation. And that the story was presented very positively, like, this is such a great thing. They figured out how to not have Down syndrome kids in their society. But it wasn't through some miracle or through some scientific cure that was able to manipulate some gene somewhere to to prevent, you know, some abnormality, we might call it. No, it was by aborting 99.9% .9 of the kids who tested positive for likely having a genetic, you know, defect. Likely having a genetic defect. The United States has an estimated termination rate for Down syndrome of 67%. We're low in our part of the world. France, 77%. Denmark, 98%. We're increasingly a modern world. We've advanced, right? To the point where we value self over sacrifice. 
clearly seen in circumstances like this where we flee from the thought of allowing any hardship in our lives. But yet, the story from CBS News also included the story of a lady who the test got her wrong, got her test wrong. She gave birth to a Down syndrome kid, would not have if she had known, the story implies at least, not knowing her thing. But what does she give her time to today? Going around telling the story of the joy of her child, advocating for disabled children. Why? Because every person has value. Has value. And yet our culture says, no, only productive members of society have value. As if Jimmy doesn't add value to our world. Now on the other hand, in a much less sinful and problematic way, our culture also struggles on the other end of this spectrum, where we at times have become so child-centered that everything else in our life gets disrupted in service of the child. Now we should love, love and serve one another. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm not saying we shouldn't value and train our kids that they shouldn't at different stages of life have take different amounts of our energy and time. That's all good. But you know, we talked before that I know in the case of my parents, for example, who loved us well and, and cared for us and you know loved Christ and walked with him, those things. Yeah, I told you the story before that they got to the day when my sister moved out of the house to go to college at 18 years old, so I was four years old with her, so I'd already been gone for a while, that they sat down at dinner right after she left and said, our lives have been so centered on our children that we haven't related to each other in 20 years well. Are we going to try to figure this out, or are we just going to give up? They loved us well, but they neglected their marriage in many ways through that time. We've got to be careful that we don't swing that way to where we become one, so focused on one part of the calling that we have as, as families, as people, that we neglect the other parts of our lives that we're called to be healthy in as well. And so, like I said, in our culture, we tend to, we have problems on both extremes of having no value in some children to putting all the value on children in some ways. God's called us to live lives of serving, sacrifice, and, and obedience to Him and to love and serve those around us. And our children are obviously part of that, and we want to do that well. So we need to see our children correctly. So what do we know um, about our children? They are a gift from God. God is clear about that. Here's what Psalm 127 says. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a blessing. Now, some have taken that passage and said, well, Christians should have all the children they could possibly have up until the day God closes their womb. Nothing wrong with that. That's not the command there. The command is the, the lesson there in Psalm 127. It's just that children are a blessing. They're not a burden. 
The first command in Scripture includes the command to be fruitful and multiply. And so God created us as reproducers. And most people will have children over the course of their lives. Also, as we, as we talked about with, with marriage, what is normative for, for humanity isn't necessarily required for every individual. Some will be unmarried and not have children. Some will be infertile. And for other reasons, there will be many who don't personally reproduce, although they, they may become parents or involved in the lives of children in other ways. But Scripture speaks clearly throughout its case, including here in Luke 18, that children are a blessing and not a burden. Children are a blessing. So the disciples here rebuke the people from bothering Jesus with their children. But Jesus says to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. He says, do not hinder the children from coming to him. That's what he says. Jesus goes further to add value for children when he says here that they are a model for how everyone should come to him with faith and trust akin to how a child naturally gives their trust to their parents or their caregivers. You know, a child naturally trusts until given a reason not to do so. In a fallen world, oftentimes that quickly comes to pass. Uh, you know, we, we learn that not all people in all situations are trustworthy. So we, we, over time, maybe learn to distrust. But what Jesus is saying here is that we should trust him and come to him in the same way that a baby craves its faithful mother. Childlike faith. You know, Jesus there isn't belittling the importance of an informed faith. He isn't saying don't, don't come with information, with research, with thinking through what you're putting your faith in. But what he is saying, what he is emphasizing is that the faith that we have should be real and true and we should trust in who he is and what he's done for us. That when we understand these things, we give ourselves completely like a baby who is dependent upon its mother for its very life. And the model for that are infants. And their mother's breast, dependent, completely dependent. It should become second nature for Christians to trust Jesus, to trust God the way that most people naturally trust their mothers. And we should trust him even when life is hard. The story I heard years ago, I'm not sure if it's true or not, about a, a dad who was in London in the midst of bombings during the war. And he had a bomb shelter in the backyard. And they didn't, as, a, as, the, as the sirens started going off, they didn't have much time. And so smoke's starting to rise from the bombs that are falling nearby. And the dad runs and jumps into the bomb shelter. And the son is following after him. But in the darkness, he, he loses sight of his dad. He doesn't know where he's gone, where he's at. And the dad's down in the bunker saying, son, jump, jump. And the son keeps saying, but dad, I can't see you. I don't, I'm, he's standing on the edge of the bunker. He's, dad, I can't see you. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And he's, I cannot see you. And the dad in the bunker says, but son, I can see you. Jump. That's the childlike faith we have to have. That we trust, even in the midst of the storm, even in the midst of the war that God is for us, that He sees us, that He's got us. We're to fling ourselves upon His mercy, fling ourselves upon His grace. The lesson here is that we should walk and live by childlike faith. But there's two things we can learn here in relation to how we relate uh, to children from how Jesus related to children here. Actually, I guess there's one thing. I'm going to state it two ways, positively and negatively. Here's the, the main point of this passage. Your main role as a parent 
or as anyone who's involved in the life of a child, grandparent, Sunday school teacher, friend, relative, whatever it is, your role, particularly as a parent, but in all these other ways as well, is to bring your children to Jesus. Bring your children to Jesus. It sounds so simple. But yet the world goes to war against that. It opposes us at every turn. We've got to do everything in our power and in the work of the Spirit through us to expose them to the gospel. Do everything that we can to teach them the faith, to live the faith out before them, to train them to trust in Jesus. That's our calling. We're going to spend some time on what that looks like in in just a minute. So positively, we'd say, bring your children to Jesus. Jesus also gives a negative aspect to that. He says, do not hinder your children from coming. Don't get in their way. We've got to do nothing to hinder our kids from coming to Jesus. Here's one thing to to think about. We we are involved in the life of the church. This is sort of, in, in, in many ways, the center of our walk with Christ. We do it in community, specifically with these people, even though there may be branches into other relationships and things and in our personal devotional lives and all in our homes and all those things. This is, in many ways, the center of where we come to kind of the launching point from our lives and, and the gospel. We come here to be refreshed, to hear, to celebrate, to rejoice, to do life together, to share our burdens, do all those sorts of things. But oftentimes, our children feel like they are a burden into the church. And we've got to be careful to not let our kids think that, that they can't even be a productive member of the church. Look, if you're a member of this church, your children, even your small children, even your infants, are a member of this church as well. We talk about communing and non-communing members. We have those who have professed faith who come to the table, but all of our children, if you're a child of a professing believer, we consider you a member of the church. One day you'll be a communing member, but regardless, you are a member of the church. And as a member of the church, you have rights and responsibilities. And we should not hinder that. We should encourage those things in our children. They have a role to play here. If they're able, we want them involved. You know, even little kids can start being involved in things now. They can take responsibility for the areas where they spend time. If they're in the nursery or in the pe- they can clean up after themselves. That's serving and loving the church and their neighbor. See, little things. We overlook them at times, but we can help teach our kids that these are things that help them serve and love people. And so we should, we should be doing this, not only here other places, but we're talking particularly about this place. They can, you know, we, um, as they get older, they can serve others. You know, my kids set up communion every week. My, my two boys, and sometimes Abigail helps. They set up communion every week. They're, you know, they're 14 and 12. They've been doing it for almost two years now, I think. You know, serving and loving, giving them opportunities, opening doors. That's easy. They have to, they kind of have to come with me. Got them a job to do. But, but they volunteer because, well, not because of me for sure, because of their character. They're, they came in looking for something to do and something to help. That's the work of God upon them. But we, we want to encourage that, not discourage it. We don't want to say, oh, you should only let adults do those sort of important things. No, if they're able, let them do stuff. If they're little kids who can pick up communion cups and do those sorts of things, let's let them, encourage them to do these things. If they get older, they can pass out bulletins or read or sing or play. We can keep dreaming for hours. And that oftentimes we say, 
sit down, be quiet, don't be seen. Not in the church. Not in the church. Get involved. Encourage your kids to take some responsibility, to take some part in this, that they can see that God has is at work in and around them. You know, and maybe it's as simple as helping them be a learner, to learn about, you know, that, that learning about God is an act of worship, that they would pay attention in Sunday school and in children's church and in worship if they're old enough. You know, we were the reason we give out candy at the door in church now is because we had parents who were saying, How what can we do to help my kids pay attention and learn more? We got, well, give them candy. Okay, you're just bribing those kids, right? Yeah, but it works. All of you are jealous. I see you. I see you. I see you taking candy sometimes. But my point is, let's encourage that. When we sit at lunch on Sunday afternoon or in the car ride home, we say, what are you learning? What was your favorite thing? And my kids don't like that question. What did you learn in Sunday school this morning? They go, uh-huh. uh-huh. We talked about that. Too, right? uh-huh. But if I ask them, what was your favorite thing that happened at church today? Yeah, they might answer that question. What was the funniest story you heard? What was the most, you know, whatever. Dad, you're not funny. That's what I get. Um, maybe you won't get that. Um, you know, let's engage our kids and help them see that learning is a role and responsibility that we have. And we can encourage these things. We can go on and on and on about all these things. But my thing is, are we encouraging our kids to be more involved? Or are we maybe even unaware teaching them that they're a burden? there's no place for them here that maybe they'll have value when they grow up no we all have value now and so that to treat children like they're a burden to the church instead of a blessing would be a major way to hinder them from coming to jesus and that doesn't just apply to parents that means that all of us when we're sitting in church and there's kids making noise we can have one of two reactions right we can have scorn and derision those people would get their kids in line or we can rejoice that there's kids in church <laughs> and maybe instead of scorn and derision we can look over our shoulder and say you need some help can i hold your baby can i take your baby outside so you can hear participate in worship today i don't know what it is but what is our attitude towards those around us What's our, we'll talk about idols in a minute, but what's our idols? What, what idols are in the way of us that, can, that cause us to hinder the children from coming to Him? We want to, we want to be a church that values kids because God, Jesus, values children. All right, so the scripture says in Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. All right, let's talk about Proverbs for a second. Proverbs are Proverbs. They're wisdom. They're not promises. This isn't a, this isn't a covenant promise from God that if you jump through this hoop, God will jump through that hoop. You know, that if you train your child up and the exact right way it's going to turn out exactly perfect that's not the point of the proverbs they're wisdom which means that in a general sense as you're going through life they're to be followed and the the, the natural way of things is, is this and so god's saying look if you want to be wise train your child up in the way he should go and chances are good that even when he's old he won't depart from it not guaranteed we oftentimes get frustrated because we go, I trained my child up in the way he should go, and now he's not walking with Jesus, and 
God broke his promise. Well, no, it's, it's principle. But it's a good principle. <laughs> it's a principle that we should invest in. That we should give ourselves to. Uh, we should we should follow this. So so how do we do that? There's lots of different ways. We're going to touch on a couple of them. We're you know we're kind of centering on church things here today. Here's what Hebrews 10 24 and 25 says. It says, "Let us not cons- let I'm sorry. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We all want our kids to do love and good works, right? Yes, yes, we love that. How does that happen? Hebrews 10. Here's what he says. As we consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I don't think this is absolutely confined to the church, but I think for a Christian it absolutely includes and emphasizes the importance of the church. That the place where love and good works is encouraged, where we're encouraged (laughs) towards those things, is that we don't neglect to meet together in worship, and fellowship, in life, but specifically here. Are we, is church attendance uh, optional in our homes? I'd say at least up to a certain age, no. That we are people, our, our kids know, we are people who go to worship. When we go on vacation, we go to worship. It's not a legalism thing, it's, I want to go to church because particularly for me, I want to hear someone preach. I want to experience stuff without being involved in the leadership of it. And I'm thankful God's called me here, but sometimes it is so refreshing. I don't want to miss that. And I hope that you feel that way even coming here, that this is a privilege that God has given to us. We take it for granted. We talked a few weeks ago about how we all have, we have the Word of God in a book that we can carry around on our phones. And we neglect it. We have the freedom to worship in our nation. And yet we take it for granted oftentimes. We've got it, it set the expectation early uh, that except in rare circumstances, we're going to be a family who worships together and attends worship, that this is a priority, that God is a priority in our life, the church and the family of God, the people are a priority in our life. So that's one thing, make church a priority. Second, expose our kids to the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let me turn over there. I forgot to mark it. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, I'm not resting in Christ, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what's what is the help in that? Well, Hebrews 12 tells, I mean 412 tells us, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're going to talk in a minute about the importance of dealing with the heart over dealing with just the outward behavior, that our primary role as parents is to help deal with our kids' hearts, their spirit, their mind, their emotions, their will, all those things that Scripture calls the the inner man or the the spirit and the the heart. How do we do that? What, What is the tool that God has given us to minister to our own hearts, to expose our own hearts, and to help our kids. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. 
He said, I wish I could just reach my kid's heart. How do you do that? Well, the Word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Family worship. We're not great at this in my house. You go, but you're a preacher. I know, and we're busy. And so I get it. We're, we've got to get better. And I think it looks different things. We, we were better when our kids were younger and our and are healthier, and I think our family in so many ways was healthier for it then. But we're responsible as parents to disciple our children, to teach them the ways of the Spirit, the ways of the Lord. It's the I think it's the primary responsibility of the parents. Here's what Deuteronomy um, chapter six says. See, I've got some of these verses. Let me look up all of them. Deuteronomy six. He says, you know, now this, he says in six one, this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules. So what does God require of us? That's what this chapter is getting at. It says that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it. So where you're going to live, this should be what, what drives and rules your life, your society, your home, these sorts of things. Uh, that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. So it's not just personal responsibility. This is family responsibility, generational responsibility. Uh, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days be long. And he says, Hear therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, uh, that it may go well with you, and you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's saying, Look, once again, principle, do these things, and your blessings will come. God will bless your life if you live under the law of the Lord. And he says, This, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, okay, so that's the law. That's the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, Jesus later on says that loving your neighbor is, is likened to that. But, but here we're talking about this. So what should we do that? How do we get that into our, into our lives, into our families, into our hearts, into our kids, into ourselves? What is it? He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be as frontlets, but they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What's he saying? Your life should be consumed with the word of God. You know, Juwan. You probably see. She probably today. She's probably right now. She's writing to do list on her hand. <laughs> Why? So she'll see it. She'll remember it. She looks at her hand all day long. What does he say? Write the word of God on your hands. That's not necessarily a commandment. What he's saying? Keep the word of God before you as you're eating, as you're traveling, as you're sleeping, as you're waking, as you're going through and in and out the door. The word of God should be forefront in your lives. He says, you know, there, he goes on to say, there are blessings in all of this that God will bless you as you do these things. Look, the church is here to help you and assist you and come alongside you. That's part of our role, to teach, to catechize, to instruct your kids. That's why we have Sunday school and children's church, all these things. We want to help you with this, but I guarantee you that your kids are going to catch more from you in day-to-day life than they're going to get from an hour or two of instruction on a Sunday morning. Or if they go to you know, or, or school or whatever that, they're going to get this stuff. 
They'll learn it, but they're going to be more impacted by how we live our lives before them than the things we teach them, particularly if the things we teach them don't add up and don't match up with the way that we live. They're going to know. And so we, we want to do that. We want to help you and serve you. But our kids are going to be impacted by the way we live. There's no way to underestimate the value of a life lived faithfully by a parent before and alongside a child. Look, if your kid experiences you repenting and walking by faith, seeing you pray, seeing you read your Bible, we can go down the list, particularly repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ along the way and loving your neighbors, all of those things. If they see those things, they're going to be more likely to love Jesus because they see you love Jesus and model that for them. In our session was talking this week about how stats show that two-thirds of the people who become Christians in their life do so before the age of 18. You get that? This is a massively important thing in the salvation and life of our kids. This is when God's at work bringing and drawing people to Himself. So let's not be immune to that or neglect that. So we've got to teach our kids. One aspect of that is teaching our kids what the Lord expects of them. The fifth commandment says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God has given you. That's a command. We should teach our kids that command. Ephesians 6, 1-4 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. He says, Honor your father and mother. That quotes that commandment. It said, This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So he repeats that. It's important. But then he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Look, so we should teach our kids to honor and obey their parents. Children should be expected to obey. That should be an expectation that we have. But they do have to be trained and learned to obey in an environment where they're not provoked. So this command is not to provoke is, is to the dads. So dads, we've got to be setting the pace here. It's ultimately our responsibility. But we must lead, and this is true for moms and others involved in the life of kids as well. We've got to lead in cultivating grace and not shame in our homes. We've got to ask, what is more evident in our homes? Is it grace? which will be evidenced by the Spirit. So think about this. When you think about your home life, when the doors are closed, nobody's watching. It's you and your kids, your spouse, whatever. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's the test, the mirror, in a sense, in which we look at and say, is my home a home of grace and joy? Or is our homes just full of the law? Do this or I'm going to get you. You better obey. Or it's going to go bad for you. That may be the case, but how do we present that? What rules in our lives? When we only address behavior and not hearts, we end up growing little Pharisees who obey, but not for the right reasons and not for long. Because as soon as that threat's removed, they're going to do whatever they want to do. So we've got to be careful to make sure that we're addressing the issues that come up in their lives in the right way. We don't just command or warn or threaten or whatnot uh, them to, be, to obey and then be satisfied if they do so for a time because, like I said, kids are crafty. As soon as that threat's gone, they're gone. 
But we want to go beyond behavior and speak to their heart issues. As we said, the heart in Scripture includes a, a few different things. When, it, when the Scripture talks about mind and will and emotions and spirit, the inner man, those sorts of things, that's the same thing as saying the heart. So we look for those key words in Scripture. We think about those things. And so we want to help them figure out not just how to obey, but why they should obey. This is massive. This is key. Uh, and learn to re- recognize the idols in their lives that they choose over Jesus. Because when, when they're disobeying, in that moment, they're saying, I love this thing more than Jesus. Whatever disobedience they're pursuing. And so it gives, a, gives them a, a place, becomes an idol, a place that something that takes a greater place in their heart than Jesus. And so we've got to learn to do that with gentleness. But more importantly, and the way to do that with gentleness, is we've got to be doing that in our own lives. We've got to be searching out and killing the idols in our own hearts if we expect our kids to do the same. So, for example, when I sense myself getting angry at my kids, I have to be careful that what is making me angry is that they've actually sinned against me or God or against their kids or their, I mean, their brother and sister or their mom or whatever, whatever the situation is. And that they've actually sinned, they're being disobedient, they aren't just getting on my nerves. Yeah? That they haven't just been acting like a kid and their activity has disrupted my idolatry. My comfort, my peace, my quiet, my, 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 whatever it is in that moment, I'm loving more than my kids. It's not that their activity might not need some direction, even if it's not sinful. But it may not require my anger and their repentance. Because that's the goal. We want our kids to repent and walk by faith, Right? I think God gives us kids and, and other relationships and every situation in our lives to some degree to help us discover and hopefully destroy or see the destruction of our idols. Now, I say all the time, I didn't know that I idolized peace and quiet until there was no peace and quiet. But we've got to have realistic expectations for our kids. I often expect my kids to be more mature as teens or preteens than I was in college or even later. I expect them not to fight with each other when I know what I was like at their age. Non-stop fighting with my sister. Badgering her. I would, we, we stayed at home in the afternoons by ourselves. I would often lock her in the door in her room. I would tie a rope around the door and tie it to another door so she couldn't get out because she was getting on my nerves. So I'd make her, I'd wait she rent in her room, I'd lock her in her door. And so there was also the day where she's chasing me around the house with an iron skillet. She's going to kill me. I probably gave her a good reason, but I don't remember that. Um, you know, here's the hope, though. We fought nonstop for years. And now she's one of my best friends. There's hope. There's hope. I've got to remember when my kids are trying to kill each other, it's not the end of the world. Well, unless they kill each other. Hopefully we're not going to get there. <laughs> but it's not. They're kids. They need my help, not my derision. Not my scorn. They need discipline. 
But the scripture says that discipline comes from love. Do I love my kids enough to discipline them correctly? It starts with dealing with my idols. Because if I'm not dealing with my idols, then all I'm going to do is be selfish in my instruction of them. It's going to be about me, not about them. When if I'm living in repentance and faith, then it can be healthy for all of us to learn these things. All right, so we need to hear, as we, as we finish, we need to hear just a couple of things. Two things. Some of us are maybe sitting in this room and we feel hopeless. We've lost all confidence that we can actually parent our kids well. Here's a word for you. You can do this. Okay, you can't do this, but through the work of the Spirit, through you, you can do this. God's at work in the lives of our children. If you will repent boldly, believe radically that God's Word works in spite of us even, and love your kids unconditionally, it's going to be okay. And if your kids walk away from the Lord, and they might, don't stop loving them. Keep pursuing them. Don't stop repenting when you sin against them. Don't stop praying for them. You never know what great work God is up to in their lives, in your life, in our lives. So let's pursue faithfulness and love them well. On the other side of the coin, some of us maybe believe that we've discovered or devised a foolproof system. If we read the right books, we've been to the right conferences, we've been careful to check off all the right boxes and the perfect plan for raising perfect kids, that everything's going to turn out perfectly. Here's what you need to know. It's going to be okay when your plan fails. Because it's going to fail on some level, to some degree. It's going to get turned upside down. God's bigger than your plan. In our preparation for worship, Paul Tripp gives us some hope here. Here's what he says. We all look for strategies or techniques that will free us from the pain of relationships and the hard work that good relationships demand. We hope that better planning, more effective communication, clear role definitions, conflict resolution strategies, gender studies, and personality typings, to name just a few, will make the difference. He's talking about relationships in general. He says, there may be value in these things, but if they were all we needed, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would be unnecessary or at best redundant. Skills and techniques appeal to us because they promise that relational problems can be fixed by tweaking our behavior without altering the bent of our hearts. But the Bible says something very different. It says that Christ is the only real hope for relationships because only He can dig deep enough to address the core motivations and desires of our hearts. The most dangerous aspect of your relationships is not your weakness, but your delusions of strength. Self-reliance is almost always a component of a bad relationship. I get this. I've read books, I've watched videos, I've embraced strategies and techniques for marriage and parenting and pastoring, and I'm going to keep doing that because I think there's wisdom in learning from others. But we all need to know that when God is at work, it's most often that the lessons that he's teaching us come through heartache and failure. We said before, if you ask, if you take a poll of the most meaningful moments in our lives, almost none of us point to those peaceful times. No, we all point to times of suffering and heartache where God's carried us through and we've seen God at work in the hard moments. 
where he teaches us that we are dependent people. We're dependent on him just like a baby's dependent on their mother. So God designed us to be dependent. But more importantly, he sent his son to pay the price for our failures. Like I said, I often stink at being a parent. But what gives me hope is that Christ has paid for my failures. He loves my children. He has a plan for their lives. He loves them more than I do. Thank God, because sometimes I don't feel like I love them well at all. And so that gives me the strength and the will to keep working on this parenting stuff and all this relationship stuff. I need to be reminded that it's the strength that comes alive in my weakness as we've been talking about this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. It changes hearts. It hurts, but it's good to have our idols exposed. It's good to be able to admit that we don't have all the answers, but that we do have a God who we can trust, who can change our hearts, can change our kids' hearts, can redeem any mess that I've made. So let's depend upon Him. Let's pray. Uh, I'm going I'm to pray for us. And then I want us to go home wherever we go in our lives and love on our kids. Teach them that God loves them so much He sent His Son to die for their sins. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to love You and love people well. Particularly those people close to us. Our friends, our spouses, our parents, our kids. As we think about parenting, God, I do pray that You would help us to lead our kids to You to not hinder them from coming to you, that you would be at work even right now drawing them to yourself, just as I hope you're drawing all of us deeper into a relationship with you. God, thank you for your grace. May it be sufficient in our weakness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.